Hello friends and welcome to the fifth instalment in our GCP Shorts series where we hear from our friends of the podcast on a hot topic or theme for the captive insurance market today. This week I am joined by Paul Phillips and Mikael Rabstein, both partners at EY and we discuss what risk shifting and risk distribution means when thinking about tax qualification in the United States. Paul is a partner and the EY Global Captive Network co-leader and Mike is a partner and EY American. America's Captive Insurance Services Deputy Leader. You can find their full biographies and contact information in the episode description. If you have not already, then please do make sure you are subscribed to the Global Captive Podcast on your podcast app of choice, Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or any other that you use to ensure every episode is downloaded straight to your device free of charge when it is released. But let's get into my discussion with Paul and Mike. Paul began by outlining why risks shifting and risk distribution are important for captives in the context of tax. Neither the Internal Revenue Code or the U.S. Treasury regulations define the terms insurance or insurance contract. So instead, we look to the U.S. courts and they have provided a set of principles for an arrangement to constitute insurance. For U.S. tax purposes, these principles include the concepts of risk shifting and risk distribution. And so what is the difference between those two then? Good question. Risk shifting is primarily a contractual matter. It's when a person facing the possibility of an economic loss transfers some or all of the financial consequences of that potential loss to another party, say the insured or a captive, and that is transferred for a stated payment or a premium uh, within the contract. Risk distribution is, is, is not a contractual matter. It's rather the statistical phenomenon known as the law of large numbers. So basically, an insurer accepts enough statistically independent risk to reduce the possibility that a single costly claim will exceed the total amount taken in from all premiums from all contracts in which it issued. Uh, So they're definitely different in that one is contractual and papered. The other is more of a concept, an actuarial principle, so to speak. It is interesting to know that um, in addition to what Paul mentioned, a lot of folks, especially new entrants to the market, drive their definition of risk shifting and risk distribution from areas potentially outside of tax and their understanding of how this works, maybe in insurance or other areas. And it is important to know that the insurance set of rules and what the regulator uh, may deem feasible and, and appropriate for risk shifting, risk distribution, or insurance product in general does not necessarily align, or the Internal Revenue Code may not necessarily align to it. And the two, both the insurance side or the regulatory side, as we call it, and the tax side, need to be assessed into separate, while working together, but in two separate buckets, making sure that both work together for a proper structure. That's uh, that, that's good to know, and, and Paul and Mike, I appreciate that set, clear setting out of the differences between the two. Because as a, as a layperson myself, uh, that's one of the best explanations I've I've certainly heard. So, Mike, in terms of how you actually achieve and then demonstrate both risk shifting and risk distribution, how how can that be done? Yeah, so th- th- this has been an age long question, and um, you know, a lot of even current market participants when they put new programs in or a new market entrance uh, may struggle with. 
as Paul mentioned, there is no true definition of insurance for tax in the Internal Revenue Code or Treasury regulations. And therefore, all the instances of how companies look for and, and uh, documented and, and how it can be achieved was developed through court cases and revenue rulings from, from the service. So going back to what Paul said, how can the entities properly plan and execute on both? Well, in the last 10 years, um, we saw the approach taken by the courts have somewhat dampened um, the more formulaic guidance that was issued over the years by the IRS especially in the last four to five years. In 2014 and 2015, specifically, very well-known court cases such as Center Securitas and RBI, last not being specifically a captive insurance case, further explored the intricacies of both concepts. The basic premise for the captive owner or the prospective owners was to understand what is being insured, who has the risk, and what it truly means to shift such risk and distribute it amongst the group and within the captive. On the shifting of the risk, it is important to note that it's not just paying the premium to the insurance company. The risk needs to truly leave the insured, as Paul alluded to in one of his earlier responses. This is why parent subarrangements or policies with significant additional call premium or additional premiums that need to be paid upon an incurrence of an insured event may not necessarily work in certain cases. In these situations, the risk does not appear to leave the insured. And I do want to note that, however, the specific, specifically in the parent subarrangement, the risk shifting and risk distribution issue can be resolved with proper planning. For the risk distribution side, the key is numbers. The policy may appear to be distributing risk, but in reality, when one dives into details, it provides for only one risk and for one site being insured or for one event. Even if there may be multiple underlying components that are truly the subject of the insurance policy. The key is the number of statistically independent risks, as was noted in a number of court cases. It is important distinction that was driven by the courts in the recent cases that somewhat steps away from the need to drive the distribution through a number of insured entities, which was a more formulaic approach in earlier revenue rulings. The latter is not lost in its importance, but it's not the only factor going forward. As we mentioned before, especially in the parent subarrangements, structuring the arrangement with proper distribution where unaffiliated insurance coverage may be involved, may in certain cases and scenarios help with risk shifting as well. So that's how you go about doing it the right way. Paul, where and when have we seen uh, this actually go wrong in the captive market? Yeah, well, no doubt. I think Mike alluded to to some of this. In the area of, of risk shifting, so let's just focus on that. In the area of risk shifting in the captive market, at its basic, what could go wrongs is these are normally closely held, intimate structures that have a lot of stakeholders at the table trying to protect the company and mitigate the company's risk. As those contracts start to come to fruition, different parties will lob in different objections and they will want to protect the structure of the arrangement in different ways. And so what could go wrong is we've seen at the last minute some side agreements that would more or less guarantee the captive's performance or protect the captive against excessive losses or basically some other type of make whole arrangement that is designed to, again, protect the company. But in fact, what it's doing, it's negating the risk transfer. 
And so therefore, the risk cannot be appropriately shifted, not due to the underlying insurance contract, but due to some overlying contract that was built in at the last minute or the last second. So that's always something to to watch out for when these things are being implemented. The other negation of risk shifting that's that's common, unfortunately, is that in the area of parental risk, if the parent, the entity that owns the captive, wholly owns that captive insurance company, it will also on its balance sheet hold an investment in subsidiary account. Well, you can see that any funds paid down to a subsidiary are an equal offset to the investments in subsidiary account. Therefore, through the court systems uh, for these captives that capture uh, self-insured risk, and that is the only thing they capture, it is impossible for them to have appropriate risk shifting with regard to parental risk due to the negation of that risk from the investment in subsidiary account. The remedy for that is to actually accept or have the captive accept third party or independent risk from outside of its consolidated group. Now, granted, that means you're accepting the risk of of others and there is some considerations there. But if you accept an appropriate amount of risk from outside of the group, which the court systems have established as 30% 30% or more, the IRS has actually acquiesced and it stated that 50% or more uh, would be appropriate, uh, then that outside risk is pooled with the otherwise self-insured risk and that mixing of those two constitutes appropriate risk shifting uh, in the eyes of the U.S. tax courts or, or in the eyes of the IRS. Where do we see that go wrong? In, in addition, you also have to look at the types of entities that the parent may own and the uh, fact on whether or not this is brother-sister transfer of risk. So in, in many cases, we see a parent that owns the wholly owned captive. The parent also owns a number of different legal entities, some of which may be LLCs or partnerships. The LLCs could be single member LLCs and disregarded for tax purposes. The partnerships could be folded into the parent as parent as the general partner. These types of arrangements uh, basically have the risk sort of flow up into the parent. And then it's also considered parental risk uh, when you're doing the risk shifting analysis. So again, another what could go wrong that we have to be aware of. In the area of risk distribution, it's a little little further out there, but, but basically, you have to have enough numbers and what that number is, is is really up to the actuarial science and how correlated the events, the statistically independent events may be. No events are truly 100% uncorrelated. So there is some correlation within almost any type of exposures or set of exposures. And the actuaries, then the actuarial science has to tell us whether or not we have enough independence to create this phenomenon known as the law of large numbers. And so that is an area where where, you know, if you only have like 35 employees, for instance, you're not going to have enough statistically independent events in your workers' comp program to achieve risk distribution. So what could go wrong is simply we don't have enough distribution, enough diversification of risk, or in some cases, we don't have enough data to support that that analysis. Because again, it all goes back to the actuarial science. So that's the two that stick out uh, in my mind with regard to risk shifting and risk distribution, Richard. 
So on those then, when when they do go wrong and it's not spotted or not caught early on by advisors such as yourselves or others, what can the consequences be for the captive and, and the parent? Well, of course, if the if the parental risk issue that we mentioned isn't caught, um, then first you face the the fact that the parental premiums were likely non-deductible. Any of the parental losses were likely non-deductible and should not have been afforded insurance accounting at the captive level. That's sort of like issue number one. Of course, then you have to look at the volume and how much was previously undetected. And if if somehow that previously undetected volume exceeds more than half of the business activity of the captive, then the whole arrangement may not qualify as insurance. Uh, so so that's clearly a, a, a negative consequence consequence with regard to the failure on the risk shifting side. Likewise, on risk distribution, the exact same sort of consequence. If you fail risk distribution, then the challenge will be, is that really insurance? And if successful in mounting that challenge and disqualifying that contract as a contract of insurance, then what is the total volume or the total originally stated premium as compared to all premiums and all revenues? And is it possible that the activities associated with the failed contract exceed more than half of the time and effort or more than half of the revenue uh, associated with, with all the revenues of the captive? And if so, then perhaps the whole arrangement, the captive in its entirety fails to be treated as an insurance company and therefore would not be afforded insurance accounting, which would include the acceleration of loss reserve deductions or the deferral of unearned premium reserves. So two major book to tax differences would go away. So we've heard there, obviously, what some of the consequences are. And of course, we want to avoid those. The captives and captive owners want to avoid those. I think Paul has touched on some of this, Mike. But what are some of the common pitfalls then or mistakes that are made when captives try to demonstrate risk shifting and risk distribution? Absolutely. And, and, and you're absolutely right. Paul touched on some of these. I think for in general terms, I like to start with documentation, documentation, and once more documentation. It has been stressed a number of times by the courts and the conference and roundtables that are discussing what went wrong in a particular court case or an IRS audit. One of the factors that we see is thinking that a captive will fit any situation. And that's one of the major pitfalls. While there are planning and structuring opportunities that exist for every situation, it is fair to say that in some cases, a captive will simply not be feasible. Market participants should clearly understand how their organizational structure works how the flow of funds works, and where risks reside. This is one of the very first steps that any potential captive owner needs to take, or even the captive owners that put new products in their captives. Next comes unclear or vague policy language. As noted before, it is hard to determine sometimes what is being specifically covered. And if that's unclear, the IRS may consider a number of events, which will not be a helpful fact. If they combine the number of events versus treating them as a true distribution of risk, that will potentially go back to what went wrong and what are the consequences. In recent past, knowing the risk pool also joined the list of potential pitfalls. This is by no means to say that risk pools are bad, but captive owners should have a very clear knowledge and understanding of how the pools work, how their captive participates in such pools, and what are the economics of the transaction. In some cases, having an overly complex organizational structure that requires cross-ownership of all existing entities can also be a pitfall. In certain cases, it is easy to let the general business logic drive the captive insurance arrangement, 
and that may lead to unintended consequences of failing risk shifting. In certain cases, companies that have over 90% of risk in one entity may read recent court cases a bit too accommodating and go forward with the structure without giving it a hard thought. While court cases are indicative, each fact and circumstances around the organization needs to be planned for and reviewed independently. And of course, there's a holding called parental guarantee, as Paul mentioned. While in and of itself, in certain cases, this will not be a death sentence, we've seen some very implicit arrangements or arrangements that do not screen parental guarantee on the first look, and then upon a deeper dive, raise some significant red flags. So as ever with these uh, with these elements with a lot of case law involved, of course, things change and evolve over the years, Paul. So how has the meaning of risk shifting and risk distribution changed over the years for captives? If I just take them separately, in the area of risk shifting, I cannot think of how that may have shifted I have, or how it's changed over time. I've seen how these two different concepts may have been commingled and, and maybe sometimes we're talking about risk distribution, but using risk shifting as the term of art. But risk shifting itself, as I mentioned, is primarily a contractual matter. And then you look on top of that to see if there's any overlying uh, events or circumstances that would negate the risk shift. Uh, risk distribution, on the other hand, has definitely had some some interesting twists and turns along the way. In 2002, the service put forth a number of revenue rulings and in one of those, in the revenue rulings outlined risk distribution, but coined it up or teed it up as basically the number of policyholders that the uh, captive insured. And it was looking for 12 or 13 legal entities with no legal entity representing less than 5% or more than 15% of the risk. Quite frankly, I was in Washington, D.C. at the time and lobbied for some uh, captive rulings. And we celebrated these rulings as, as it was the first time that the IRS had actually acknowledged that captive arrangements could be valid insurance arrangements within a consolidated group. Later, we started to find out in 2005, whenever the 2005-40 notice was was put forth, that these legal entities needed to be regarded for tax purposes. And then if they were disregarded, you would have the risk deemed to be flowing up to the parent. And therefore, you have the parental risk issue uh, that I previously mentioned. And at that time, you started to really question whether or not the number of insureds was the right methodology in computation of risk distribution because again from an actuarial perspective or how you price the the insurance policy you really get back to the statistically independent nature of the events how correlated they may be the magnitude of them and it's all part of actuarial science that comes into risk distribution from an insurance company's perspective and therefore you started to recognize that that the difference between what the IRS was purporting and what the industry had always known existed. Later, through Rena Center and Securitas, two very important captive court cases that came out, there was an emphasis replaced on the statistically independent loss nature of risk distribution, and that swayed the thinking back to the actuarial science around it. So, so we've definitely seen some, some movement in how risk distribution has been defined over over the years. That, that's definitely true. Thank you, Paul. Mike, would you like to make any closing remarks? Thank you for spending 
some of your time with us today. Uh, captive insurance market is a growing and exciting frontier that continues to pivot in response to legislative and judicial decisions and the overall insurance market and global events. No captives are the same, and it's very important for the current and new captive owners to properly assess, plan, and then execute on their captive insurance strategy, both internally and with proper captive insurance market partners. The risks are not going away. How you manage them is the key. Well, thank you to Paul Phillips and Mikhail Rabstein from EY for that comprehensive introduction to and explanation of the importance of risk shifting and risk distribution in the US captive context. More information on EY, Mike and Paul can be found in the episode description and on the Global Captive Podcast website. As ever, if you are new to the Global Captive Podcast, then please do ensure you are subscribed and check out all of our previous episodes. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.